2: The guy who invented it, largely, is a man called Robert Gaskins, who's this really interesting guy and who is, maybe I'll attempt to prove during the course of this, like the tech hero we should have. It should not be Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, but it should be Robert Gaskins.
1: My lovely producer, Freddie, has just sent me a note saying, Asterix, please don't be too hard on PowerPoint in this intro. As if I'd be hard on PowerPoint. I love PowerPoint. Sometimes. I'm Dallas Campbell. Welcome once again to Patented. It's my podcast all about the history of inventions and innovations and people. And it's brought to you from the fine folk at History Hits. Okay, I promise you I'm not going to get cross about PowerPoint. In fact, I can guarantee that this episode is going to make your life better. Because the story of PowerPoint, and I didn't know this is actually fantastic. And when you've learned its history, you're going to be a lot happier the next time that you sit down to make a slide, and even a bit more forgiving the next time you have to sit through a terrible PowerPoint presentation. Remember, PowerPoint is just the tool. It's just the tool. It's the person that's behind PowerPoint that is the problem very often. Anyway, my guest today is Russell Davies. He is a writer. He is a strategist. He's a deep thinker. And he is the author of Everything I Know About Life I Learned from PowerPoint. So there you go. Get ready for a trip down memory lane as well, because we're gonna be talking about things like overhead projectors and slideshows and all the things that, um, if you're my age, used to have when you were a kid at school. And we're gonna fall in love with a man who Russell says is the tech hero we should all have, and that's Robert Gaskins, the guy who invented PowerPoint. Let's go. (laughs) What's your background with PowerPoint, just so I know?
2: So I worked in advertising for a long time. My career in advertising coincided with PowerPoint quite well. I was youngish at the same point where it arrived. So I just saw the end of the pre-PowerPoint era and then thought, oh, this looks interesting. I'll try learning how to use this. And for a long time... Because I'd done a little bit of work on it, I was one of the only people who knew how to put an image in PowerPoint. I would present stuff and people go, yeah, that's fine, we'll do that. How do you get the images in, you know?
1: I mean, it's more than just a bit of software, obviously. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is shaped, I think humans on earth to a great degree and we kind of got this love-hate relationship with PowerPoint and it's interesting as well because it's so ubiquitous it's become almost invisible and when I knew I was doing this episode I was like PowerPoint I was like oh my god yeah of course it exists and someone must have invented it at some point and let me see if I can find it I just went on the PowerPoint wiki page actually just and there's some really nice things in it and this was a quotation I found Julia Keller Chicago Tribune 2003 and she says PowerPoint is one of the most persuasive and ubiquitous technological tools ever concocted. In less than a decade, it's revolutionised the worlds of business, education, science and communications, swiftly becoming the standard for just about anybody who wants to explain just about anything to anyone else. From corporate middle managers reporting on production goals, to fourth grade fashioning, a show and tell on the French and Indian war, to church pastors explaining the seven deadly sins, PowerPoint seems poised for world domination nation wasn't that long ago actually crikey and it really has i mean it's sort of taken over everything it's taken and changed the way that we do things i guess well it hasn't it hasn't to
2: some extent it just replicated the sort of presentational norms that existed before so robert gaskins who invented it made a big study of how people presented pre-computers and a lot of what PowerPoint done is replicate those things.
1: So all the bad habits that we, the re, I mean, the reason when we talk about death by PowerPoint, it's not PowerPoint that's the problem. It's just that it's just replicating bad presentations from the past.
2: The reason we talk about death by PowerPoint is that, uh, this is going to sound like an awful conspiracy, is that the people who control mainstream media, politicians and journalists, are the only people in the world who don't use PowerPoint.
1: Don't they? I thought everyone used PowerPoint or some d- derivative of PowerPoint.
2: Yeah, but journalists, for the most point, receive presentations, but don't give them.
1: Oh, I see. Oh, that's interesting.
2: And politicians almost never, apart from during the pandemic, never use PowerPoint.
1: That's interesting.
2: One of the things you discover in writing articles and books about PowerPoint, which I've done, is that journalists are desperate to write articles about how everyone hates PowerPoint, when the reality is not everyone does hate PowerPoint. There's a sort of narrative about death by PowerPoint and it's corporate blah, blah, blah but it's um, not really true. Most people
1: love it. Okay, I was just having a Twitter argument just before we came on about why I don't like PowerPoint. I think the interface is really confusing and difficult. I mean, I use Keynote, which I find a lot easier. So mine isn't a kind of, it's not a cultural dislike of PowerPoint. It's just the way that it's set up. So maybe that's something, or maybe that's my own stupidity.
2: It does have challenges. And I must admit, I most of the time I use Slides, to be honest. I use Google Slides. I mean, PowerPoint has become a generic, like, Hoover. And so certainly in writing the book, I was mostly talking about presentation software but a lot of why presentation software is the way it is is because of the decisions that Robert Gaskins made with PowerPoint. Well
1: actually just before we get on to Robert Gaskins let's go in our our time machine and, and go back a little bit. I think we're roughly a similar sort of age. I certainly remember life before PowerPoint and at school we had chalkboards and we had overhead projectors and acetate. That and chalkboards were maybe whiteboards as, as well but that's oh, oh and we had carousels with photographs in and that was it and that seemed to be Pretty good, although I sat through a lot of boring clicker presentations too. So
2: pre-PowerPoint, or pre-personal computers, effectively, the dominant ways of presenting in organisations were, as you say, either OHP overhead projectors, states on over projectors, or the photo carousel thing, the 35mm slides. And actually, again, one of the things that you see in PowerPoint is they're very different experiences, like 35mm slides, the room needs to be dark, the only bright thing is the screen. So people fall asleep. <laughs> i never really? thought
1: of that. Well, I ne- yeah. And presumably no text as, or very little text because you're dealing with photographs. So presumably generally you're seeing images or did people do slides with text on for those as well?
2: So, they would have bureaus. a large company would have a bureau that made slides for senior executives to do presentations or sales forces and that 's largely when they invented PowerPoint. What they thought the business opportunity would be is that companies were spending enormous amounts of money preparing presentations, and that they would choose instead to buy a computer and PowerPoint to save money
1: i 'm just going to shoehorn a cultural reference in here for our listeners um my favorite film of all time is a film called Local Hero by Bill Forsyth. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, good skies, McIntyre. Aye, <laughs> that's the anchor wait That's him gone. Anyway, uh, are the two Gs in it off. Anyway, great film. However, the opening scene of that film, credits come up, is a darkened room, and they're all sitting around a board table, and they're giving a carousel photo slide presentation. And Burt Lancaster, who plays one of the main roles in it, is sitting there asleep in the darkened room. So there you go. And the,
2: for your the younger listeners, the, where people will have seen it is in Mad Men.
1: Oh, yes, yes. I like to think I have younger listeners. <laughs> 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 OK, so that's the old world. Why, how, when, PowerPoint version one? What's the deal? What day? Can we get, can we get really detailed? It was like four o'clock on a Thursday.
2: There is an actual date. Oh, I think it was April the 20th, 4.30pm on in 1987. Wow. This is part of the story. The guy who invented it, largely, is a man called Robert Gaskins, who's a, this really interesting guy and who is, maybe we'll, I'll attempt to prove during the course of this, like the tech hero we should have. It should not be Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, but it should be Robert Gaskins.
1: Well, yeah, no one's heard of Gaskins.
2: After he did PowerPoint, he retired and spent a long time working on a website called concertinas.com.
1: I heard he played the concertina. I heard this. Tell me more.
2: It's the definitive source of information about concertinas. And it's yes. it's everything that made him good about developing PowerPoint. It's rigorous, fastidious, creative, well-written. It's really interesting. Anyway, so... And it's still up. Can you yeah, still... Yeah, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. want to know
1: about concertinas. That's the place to go. Yes.
2: The prehistory is quite interesting. His dad ran a business that did audiovisual work, as they called it at the time. So OHPs, projectors, all that kind of stuff. So we grew up around those things. He went to Berkeley College in the States in uh, 1968. So the height of, you know, all the sort of uh, hippie world in 68. Yeah. And he studied basically a combination of computing and humanities. So he was in the English department but he was interested in computing. And he did things like working out how you might do typesetting on computers for Chinese text and stuff like that. He then went into a large tech company and spent years presenting to people in the old way of doing it with acetates and overheads and things like that. Then got hired by a company called Forethought that was trying to develop applications for the computing world they assumed would soon come, which was graphical user interfaces. So everyone knew that round the corner would be Windows and the Mac and probably the version from IBM, which would be the first computers that had mouses, mice, (laughs) uh, that had Windows, all that kind of stuff. The first proposal for PowerPoint was written in 1984. At the time, it was called Presenter. He hired one person to work on it um Dennis
1: oh I've got a picture of it I just hang on I just googled images actually because I wanted to see yeah here we go Dennis Austin Dennis Austin
2: yeah so they started working on it together with not much corporate support like no one else really believed it was a great idea
1: so a bit of a garage thing like Steve Jobs and you know oh we did it in our garage that type of thing
2: A little bit. Inside a company that was trying to do other things, they had this vision for doing this thing. They worked on that for a couple of years, made a lot of, I think, very smart decisions up front because Gaskins had done all this work about understanding presentational cultures and thinking about those things, and it basically saved the company that they were in because although not many people believed in it, enough people believed in it that they actually launched a product and sold out in two days 8,000 copies of the product.
1: If I'd bought that product, if we go in our time machine to 87 and we buy it and we load it up on our computer, what can we do with it?
2: You can basically print out
1: overheads. Oh, you can't hook it up to like a projector or anything?
2: No. So PowerPoint version one was for printing out on a laser printer overhead projectors Mm -hmm. and using them like that. You could see your slides on the screen, but Macs at the time and PCs that came a little bit later, like Windows PCs that came a little bit later didn't have video outs (laughs) so you couldn't connect them to projectors or bigger screens or anything like that so version one was for making black and white overheads version two you could make slides with it this was when color arrived you would make the slides on the pc and then send a file to a bureau overnight by fedex who would send you 35 millimeter slides back So you were making stuff to go in a carousel.
1: Wait, you'd save it on like a floppy disk or something?
2: Yeah, you'd send a floppy. I think there was some network you could send a file, but it wasn't until version 3 that you could output to a projector. And the interesting thing is that people were doing that because organisations were spending so much money making presentations the old way that people would buy a computer in order to get PowerPoint. When GUI computers launched, the Mac and Windows and things like that, for a lot of people, the reason to buy one was to get PowerPoint.
1: So it wasn't part of like things like Office didn't exist?
2: No, no, it wasn't bundled with Office until much later. It was actually finally a useful application for the personal computer inside
1: businesses. Tell me about the name itself, PowerPoint. Bob originally called it Presenter, which is a kind of a good name, but where did PowerPoint come from?
2: It was called Presenter for the first two and a half years or whatever of development. Then they discovered it was trademarked and had to come up with a name <laughs> right. about a month before it launched. I mean, it's sadly it's quite a prosaic story. You just said yeah, I came up with it in the shower, and then someone else in the team independently came up with the same name, and they thought, okay, well that's a good sign, and they started calling it PowerPoint.
1: When they did version one and it was sort of unleashed on the world, and they sold eight thousand copies. Did they know quite the revolutionary effect or the ball that they had started rolling?
2: I think they did, yeah. They describe it as it was suddenly very clear that we had very good product market fit, as Silicon Valley people say, and that it was a very large market.
1: And who was the market then? Because now in that quotation I read, everyone uses PowerPoint. It's not just business people or academics it's everyone so who was it aimed at
2: it was aimed at businesses that were doing large numbers of presentations and it was aimed at specifically the people in the business that was doing the presentation what they wanted to do was give the people who had to give the presentation control of the presentation and control of the materials for the presentation because people were used to having to go I need some slides they'd scribble them out hand them to someone else who would make the slides or the OHPs or something. And finally, they were given direct control of the presentation, which again is why I think one of the reasons PowerPoint's been so successful, it's aimed at the person doing the making.
1: It's really interesting, actually, because the fact that PowerPoint gives you so much control and gives you infinite choice of doing anything you want, in a way it's killed the creative process, I think. Because you have such a wide canvas... If your canvas is infinitely wide as an artist or a writer, it's very hard to know where to start. I think it's why Twitter's so successful. Because you're limited and because the parameters are so strict, you have to be disciplined and you have to think creatively. And and things like PowerPoint, it's almost like the menu is too vast. You go into a restaurant and the menu is too vast. It's just bewildering. I can imagine the idea of having to do your slides... With a limited budget and then having to put them onto floppy disk and then sending them, you're not going to change them or anything and so you've got to really plan
2: i think this is so much of the tension and fascination with it as a tool it's why it's succeeded first thing is it does have discipline because it's a rectangle it's a landscape rectangle and that creates all sorts of things in itself but also i think every generation of product manager at microsoft has clearly had the same conversation and every other tool every other version of this when people launch we're going to reinvent presentations what they always do is go we're going to constrain people's choice more so that their slides are more tasteful and i mean that's what keynote does right it constrains things but that's exactly the opposite of bob gaskin's intent and exactly the opposite of why people love powerpoint is because it can do anything and for most people in the world it's the only creative tool they've got it's the creative software tool that they're given it's why it's used for everything
1: is that the reason why it's become as hated as it is loved because it lets people be themselves
2: honestly i think quite a lot of this is to do with power so one of the stories that gets written a lot is x has banned powerpoint Jeff Bezos has banned PowerPoint. So inside organisational cultures, people periodically ban PowerPoint or the US military, you know, like a general bans PowerPoint or whatever. Very often what they're trying to do there is kind of go, everyone should communicate in the way that I like, you know, inside my organisation. Lou Gessner of of IBM famously banned PowerPoint, who's the, the CEO who remade it. And he said, what we should just do is talk about the business without realising that as a junior employee, you can't just talk to the CEO about the business like you're on an equal platform. Bezos and Amazon banned PowerPoint because they wanted everyone to do these six page memos. They wanted a written memo with a coherent argument and all that kind of thing, which is a good idea, but is also a tremendous exercise in power and control and that kind of thing. PowerPoint gives people a platform and they're very often people who don't have that platform. They're a way of if you've got to stand up in a room and do a talk and you've never done it before and it's the first
1: time you have to do it, it helps you. It does. Well, you're absolutely right, of course. It gives you kind of banister to hold. You know, I was just saying I had a conversation on Twitter today and I think the solution, PowerPoint should develop a sister bit of software called PowerPoint Lite or To The Point where basically, a bit like Twitter, you have a 12 slide maximum in your presentation where you can't have more than 12 slides and like a 12 word minimum on each side and just see how different things would be. That
2: probably exists. Someone will have invented that. One of the things that happens is people go, I tell you what's wrong with PowerPoint. It doesn't work the way I like things to be. And periodically they invent that. One of the things it does, and I think one of the reasons it's loved, is a PowerPoint presentation is the only time inside an organisation or a company where it's acceptable to just put a quote in that you like or pictures of your kids. It's somehow the corporate tool that gives you more room. And where you can spend time going, I like this font, so I'm going to use this font. It's got more room for expression in it than any other sort of
1: tool. I think you're absolutely right. and it, But in, in sort of doing that, you're going to get this kind of love and hate things.
2: Yeah, yeah. Your boss hates that, obviously.
1: Yeah, you do your, your slides in comic sans and everyone starts screaming and, and sort of like gouging their eyes out.
2: So the Higgs boson, you probably know this. Yes. The Higgs boson was announced with a PowerPoint presentation that used Comic (laughs) Sans.
1: Right, okay.
2: It was a very deliberate choice because in the scientific community or bits of the scientific community, if your slides look too slick, it looks like you're not a good scientist. It looks like you spent too much time Thinking about the quality of your slides. So using something like Comic Sounds is a signal that, like, I'm a serious person. This is just a nice font. I'm going to use it.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, the psychologist must have a field day talking about how we do presentations and how we lay out slides. And also, you're actually right. PowerPoint is just a tool. Ultimately, what spits out comes from us. We'll be back after this short break. Gone Medieval Is History Hits' podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history?
2: I'm Dr Kat Jarman, a Viking Age
0: bioarchaeologist and author.
1: And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer.
0: Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research.
1: We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, rebellions and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know.
0: Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you i'm interested does those original inventors of powerpoint first of all are they still involved in it like what happened to those original people because you said it was originally designed for macintosh and now obviously it's part of windows just tell us through the history of of powerpoint briefly so we know how things worked
2: this small company forethought who developed presenter which became powerpoint they launched version one which was for the Mac initially because the Mac was the first platform that could cope with this. This was pre-Windows. As soon as it launched, pretty much instantly, they got bought by Microsoft because... Everyone knew that the future coming was graphical user interfaces and that PowerPoint was one of the things you had to have. So they moved into Microsoft. They were the only bit of Microsoft in Silicon Valley for a long time. So everyone else had to move to Seattle, which is where Microsoft was. The PowerPoint, it was called the graphics business unit, stayed in Silicon Valley. They did version two, they did version three. They were developing for the Mac and Windows at the same time because the Mac was a more capable machine at the time, though everyone knew Windows would eventually dominate and take over the world because of the installed base gaskins i think left after version 3.1 uh which was windows 95 and windows 3.1 which was when windows finally became properly capable and it got rolled into office. It became part of the office suite and it just became a thing. I mean, again, part of the reason for its ubiquity is you get it when you get a computer, basically.
1: You mentioned Gaskin and his accordions. Constantine, sorry, he was an interesting guy. Is he still involved in it or what does he do now? Did he make so much money that he sits on an island sipping pina coladas?
2: He's got a lovely website, apart from constantinos.com and he wrote a brilliant book about the history of PowerPoint called Sweating Bullets. Which is very fastidious, very rigorous. He's very careful to be accurate about the history of PowerPoint. He realises the bad uses that have been put to. Uh, He's aware of that, but he's also proud of what he invented, I think. He's retired. He moved to London for a long time, did the concertina stuff. He helped curate some exhibits about concertinas at the Horniman Museum in South East London.
1: I know the Horniman very well. Yeah, great museum. That's really interesting. So he's not like a a kind of Thomas Edison who just carried on inventing millions of groundbreaking things. It was like PowerPoint and accordions.
2: Yeah, he's starting to be rediscovered. In the same way people are starting to rediscover the inventors of drum machines and video games and things that, again, no one thought anyone invented them. But then we look back and go, okay, yeah, they did. His invention was non-obvious. Now we look back and go, yeah, PowerPoint's just like part of nature. And the team he put together was... I think unique in that it was programmers and developers and engineers who also understood typography and literature and communication. They were almost 50 percent female. The technical team were almost 50 percent women, which at the time was extraordinary. It was I mean, now is extraordinary for a thing that people think of all or the, or the popular narrative of this just sort of banal corporate mediocre thing. It's actually got this sort of really interesting figure at the centre of it and the, all these interesting decisions.
1: I really love this story and I love it for exactly that reason, because I'm one of these people who thinks or thought PowerPoint was pretty much part of nature and gets cross with it for all the reasons we get cross with it. But actually, the, just looking into it, suddenly this wonderful story starts to emerge. He said his book was called Sweating Bullets, which obviously has the nice bullet point double reference. It also implies difficulty. And was there any sort of horrific birth processes in PowerPoint that we should know about?
2: There's a sort of lot of corporate complexity. They were inside a company that had another division that was selling software that wasn't doing very well. Sort of Silicon Valley thing of, well, we need another round of money and we need blah, blah, blah. But... Not like, you know, you couldn't make a film of it. (laughs) Okay,
1: okay. Did you see the Ray Kroc film about the inventor of McDonald's? I I watched that the other day. It was really good. I'm like, hey, maybe we could do that, but with PowerPoint. PowerPoint the movie would be good. There's got to be a PowerPoint the opera or something.
2: I mean, obviously there was some corporate strife, but it was largely a story of Dennis and Bob sitting and agreeing with each other, making a nice tool, (laughs) and then loads of everyone in the world buying a copy.
1: So his book, Sweating Bullet, just tell us about your book, because you've written a book about this as well.
2: Yes, I've written a book called everything I know about life I learned from PowerPoint is not really a history of PowerPoint which is why some of these facts may be unreliable it's kind of a bit about growing up inside organizations alongside PowerPoint a bit about why I think it's culturally interesting and it is and there's all sorts of little sidestep you know about PowerPoint is to some extent responsible for all sorts of odd things like colin powell used a powerpoint presentation to make the case for going to war with iraq like people forget that
1: there's a richard Feynman shuttle story about powerpoint as well yeah
2: and edward tuft who's a, a legendary sort of information design person who who is a genius but blames powerpoint for the shuttle disaster or blames the use of powerpoint for things like that why what was the... explain He wrote a pamphlet called The Cognitive Style of PowerPoint, where he argues that the Lockheed engineers, I think it was, who were responsible for communicating to NASA that they shouldn't launch, used PowerPoint and used bullet points in a way that was inappropriate for communicating engineering information,
1: which is arguably
2: true. I'm not sure it's necessarily PowerPoint's fault.
1: But that's it. You're right. You know, when you when you said it's culturally interesting, it, it's basically, it's a bit of technology like other technologies that are essentially a mirror, isn't it? it? It's nothing to do with PowerPoint. It is a reflection of everything to do with us, good and bad and awful and brilliant.
2: Yeah, I think that's largely true, but it has some nudges in it. It has some affordances that make us think in a particular way or another way. A lot of art schools, for instance, if you go and study art, in the UK particularly, one of the things that they're obliged to do for sort of funding reasons is to teach you something like practical, like useful. And so what they do is PowerPoint.
1: How to make PowerPoint nice and arty.
2: I talked to a curator at the Photographer's Gallery who said art changed because it used to be if you were sending your work to a gallery, you would send it on 35mm slides, which have a certain visual characteristic and a certain aspect ratio and things like that nowadays you send PowerPoint art works differently when it's on a monitor when it's in a PowerPoint presentation when it's at that aspect ratio than it does when it's on slides and that changed art
1: yeah And presumably, if you've got like, let's say, 10 pieces of art, there's going to be a certain amount of time you're going to look at each slide before you click onto the next one, which maybe would be different if you were looking at them, if they were on the wall, perhaps.
2: Again, if you're looking at slides, you're in a dark room. The brightest source is the art. Like, it has clearly done lots of little things to us. I think most people in the UK would be astonished by this, but it's used in court a lot in America. And someone appealed, someone was found guilty of, I think, murder or or something bad and appealed the verdict because they said that the PowerPoint presentation used by the prosecutor was too persuasive. (laughs) The Court of Appeal found that PowerPoint is legally persuasive.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. When we watch a PowerPoint, does it psychologically give us a a reassurance that what we're seeing is true in a way that might be different from other medium, do you think?
2: Gaskins talks about some research which said that people who'd done overhead were seen as more authoritative than people who hadn't. And I think it, it signals To some extent, you've done some work and you've at least thought about it.
1: There will be slides.
2: Yeah. I mean, and obviously sometimes that often that creates feelings of dread, but not as bad as the idea that someone is just going to stand up and start talking because you're like, I have no idea when this will finish.
1: That's really interesting. I'm interested actually what Bob thinks, Bob the inventor, and perhaps what you think are the great crimes of the PowerPoint presentation. If we talk about death by PowerPoint.
2: Robert Gaskins would admit that one of the problems with PowerPoint is that people use it for everything and it isn't the right tool for everything. He was as good at and as much of a believer in like an effective crisply written memo as anyone else. Sometimes that's the right thing to do and often these days people just do everything in PowerPoint. I have a friend who worked at Nokia for instance. They had a culture where if they were inviting someone to lunch, they would type "Do you fancy lunch?" in a PowerPoint slide and email it to someone. A lot lot of the times you get a bad PowerPoint presentation because it's really a document it's really designed to be read but you end up with it on a screen so the abuse it gets is often because it's so ubiquitous that people just use it for things that it's you shouldn't be using presentation software for
1: think before you PowerPoint I think is the golden rule Less is more. Hey, listen, I've really enjoyed this conversation because it's the anaesthetic of familiarity. And I think PowerPoint is certainly one of those bits of technology that's utterly groundbreaking, culturally shifting, and is completely overlooked because of that. So thank you very much for that very, very brief introduction. And your book is available, presumably, and people can go and read more.
2: They can indeed.
1: And Bob's book as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely get his, maybe get mine once you've read his.
1: Russell, a great pleasure. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. I wish I'd let you go and play with your Google Slides. Thank you very much. That was fun. See you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope next time you log on to PowerPoint or Keynote, whatever you use, you will look at it in a new light with a new, uh, deeper understanding. Don't forget, if you enjoyed today's episode, leave a rating and a review. I'd be forever in your debt. Uh, don't forget to listen to all of our other episodes. I, we have so many different subjects, all kinds of different things. And don't forget to get in touch with your own ideas, and we'll uh, we'll try and do a show about those if we can. Coming up soon, I'm really excited about this. We've got a run of episodes because we, we were going to do one about forensics, the history of forensics, but there were so many good stories. We've decided to do a series about forensics. <laughs> You know, everything from fingerprints to DNA to all everything about forensics has been absolutely fascinating. So we've got a mini series coming up for you. There we go. That's it. Stay tuned. Tune in. Turn on. Peace out. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive